Welcome to the Modern Hippie Podcast, where we'll be exploring all of my favorite boundary-pushing people and topics surrounding consciousness, psychedelics, mental performance, functional medicine, living in alignment, and so much more. I'm your host, Barrett Perlman, a former pro wakeboarder turned body worker, energy healer, and well, a modern hippie. And I'm so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Modern Hippie Podcast. I am joined today by Ethan Nadelman, who is the founder and former executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance, a leader in ending prohibition against marijuana and psychedelics, and host of the podcast Psychoactive. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ethan. Oh, it's my pleasure, Barrett. So you and I met recently at the um, Psychedelics Business Conference put on by the Marijuana Business Conference um, in Las Vegas. And I got to hear you speak. You opened the conference. And um, I love your passion. I love pretty much what it seems like you've dedicated your life to, which is really this policy reform and um, getting plant medicines and psychedelics out of this dark shadow that they've been in for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, what got yeah. you into it? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, really, Barry, I should stress that, you know, my work was really directed at, at rolling back the entire war on drugs. And mm. and so that, you know, as it evolved over the years, um, it really fell into three areas with my organization, Drug Policy Alliance, and then in some of the other stuff I did. Um, one third of it was ending marijuana prohibition. And so that was, you know, first uh, legalizing marijuana for medical purposes and then decriminalizing possession and taking on the racially biased marijuana arrest and then ultimately trying to replace marijuana prohibition policies with uh, policies of responsible regulation. So that was about a third of the work that I and my colleagues devoted on drug policy reform, but it probably got about 80 percent of the headlines because it's so dramatic. (laughs) It's the the one drug, the, the most commonly used illicit drug and all of that. The second third was about ending the role of the war on drugs in mass incarceration. I mean, it was very Mm. much the war on drugs that drove this extraordinary increase in incarceration in America beginning in the 80s and 90s and into the aughts. And similarly, it was drug policy reform that was at the cutting edge of criminal justice reform in America beginning in the 90s and into the aughts. And now it's, you know, we've had quite a lot of success. I mean, the number and percentage of of the prison and jail population locked up on drug charges has fallen quite substantially, not just with marijuana, but Mm. other drugs over the last number of years. And then the last third of the work was making a serious commitment to treating drug use and addiction as a health issue, not a criminal issue. That meant advancing harm reduction strategies, you know, beginning in the 90s with needle exchange and access to sterile syringes to reduce the spread of HIV and hep C and all of that. And then taking on the overdose issue beginning over 20 years ago to try to reduce the rising number of overdose fatalities in America. Mm. And then trying to educate Americans about the more progressive drug policies in Europe and some other countries and advancing a more kind of sex education model to drug education with young people. Um, And then I should be frank, you know, the psychedelic stuff, although I was always very personally passionate about it, it was never a major part of our agenda, in part because we focused so much on doing legislative reform and ballot initiatives. And there wasn't just there wasn't really the opportunity to do that politically by the time I stopped running Drug Policy Alliance five years ago. I mean, it's only very Mm. recently that you've seen these local and statewide initiatives on psychedelics. Um, Meanwhile, I was close friends. I mean, 
been close friends with Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, since the mm. late 1980s. And so we've found yeah. times, opportunities to collaborate over the years on legal issues or medical marijuana issues or certain psychedelic issues. Um, but, you know, go back, to go back to your original question, what got me interested in this in the first place, I mean, part of it was going off to college when I was 18 and smoking marijuana and, you know, <laughs> and going, why the hell is this stuff illegal? Um, and that kind of stuck with me. And then years later, when I was in graduate school and law school, just thinking, God, this would be an interesting thing to do my dissertation work on and to focus on. And and then just as I was finishing that in 87 and starting to teach at Princeton um, in the policy school and the politics department, um, the war on drugs was taking off like crazy. I mean, when I first got involved in this issue in the early 80s, it was just a backwater issue. But the drug war was the height of public interest, the number one issue in public opinion polls in the late 1980s. And I happened to write a couple of very prominent pieces and Hellison catapulted into these 15 minutes of fame and became kind of the leading speaker in the U.S. and around the world, basically questioning the war on drugs and saying that all sorts of alternatives, including legalization, had to be on the table. And meanwhile, there was the beginnings of a, of a, of a social movement to take on the drug war, and I got very deeply involved with that. And uh, so I was speaking and writing and teaching about this stuff. And then after about, you know, in early 90s, I got a phone out of, well, 30 years ago. I got a phone call out of the blue from a philanthropist who was not that well-known back then named George Soros. And he invited me to lunch. And... Uh, you know, and we hit it off and one thing led to another. So I left the university and, uh, uh, you know, started the organization and once, you know, then eventually became the leading organization in the world advocating for alternatives to the war on drugs and, uh, mm. da, 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 da. wow. Uh, what a journey. What a journey from just <laughs> yeah. like smoking pot and loving it. <laughs> uh, no, no kidding. I, mean, I really feel like I've been very lucky and very blessed on this stuff. I mean, part of it was the fortuitous, you know, to pick an issue that was a backwater issue. Well, you know, when I started doing this in my dissertation work, people go, yeah, Ethan's not taking his career seriously. Why else would he start to work <laughs> on drugs and international crime? But then to have that issue explode into the number one issue in, in pub public consciousness in the late 80s, that was fortuitous. Getting that phone call from George Soros in 92, that was fortuitous. Um, so I had, you know, a number of lucky breaks. Um, and, uh, but I'll tell you, Barrett, it also, I should say, it was a mushroom experience since you're interested mm. in psychedelics. Um, in the summer of 89, I was at the annual Telluride Mushroom Conference in Telluride, Colorado, that Andy Weil and others um, organized. And I was up there speaking and speaking with him and such. And then that weekend, I did mushrooms for the first time. I hadn't done them in seven years since my young 20s and Ooh. mid-20s. And, um, and it was really the moment. It wasn't an epiphany, but it was really a sort of concretization, the realization that my life, that teaching about drugs was really going to be the mission in my life. And that that mm. would be a vehicle for speaking about broader issues in our society beyond just drugs and drug policy. And that it didn't matter whether or not I stayed in academia or went into advocacy or journalism or politics, but this was going to be my focus. And to both have you know stumbled on this issue and gotten involved in my mid-20s, and then to have this kind of clarity about the mission of my life in my early 30s, I mean, that I, that's just also incredibly fortunate. And, uh, and, you know, a psychedelic experience with mushrooms really helped me uh, perceive that at a really, really valuable moment. Oh, that's so fantastic. I love psychedelics for that specifically. I mean, um, yeah. I'm a big, I mainly work with psilocybin, but I'm getting a lot more into ayahuasca lately. And 
Um, mm-hmm. The things that you can be shown and the way that it'll reveal your path to you is unlike – you really don't get that from marijuana, and at least in my experience. No, that's right. It's interesting. You know, I've, I've been hearing a growing number of people talking about cannabis, about its psychedelic potential. And mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a book about it now, Psychedelic Cannabis, and I've heard other people talking about this. So I realize there's something there. And But you know, one of the things I think is also true about, about psychedelics – and for me, psilocybin mushrooms is really my key one as well. I've done – you know, I've done, uh, you know, mescaline and ayahuasca and uh, 5-MeO-DMT. I just tried changa mm. for the first time a month or two mm. ago. Um, How is that? Uh, so I, I've tried a range of other things. But but the mushroom thing, it, it's, um, you know, I've often had some with marijuana. Like, I have all these great ideas. But then, quite frankly, they just it's kind of like like flying away, like clouds disappearing or in a way <laughs> in the sky. And, and the next morning, it's rare for them to have really great value. Although I do have mm. some friends who will attribute some of their most brilliant ideas, whether in business or in, or in academia, to marijuana. But, but really? I find with the psychedelics that I've had really, you know, sort of breakthrough experiences and ideas that remain with me um, for really for decades thereafter, I mean, for life. Mm-hmm. And so there's some really great value there. I would say some of the best, probably the best letters I've ever written in my life were letters that I wrote in my head under the influence of mushrooms. And the Ooh. next day was able to re- return to that and write it down with utter clarity and then send mm. it off to people um, and in a way that was, you know, incredibly, you know, well-received and oftentimes important in my relationships with people. Wow, that's so cool. Because, yeah, I, I have similar experiences on marijuana where, like, I swear to God, I solve the world's problems. And mm-hmm. then I can't remember what the solutions were the next day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. But, there have been times when I've, like, read a novel and under the influence of marijuana and just loved it. And the next day, I can't remember a thing about it. And with <laughs> movies, I, I'm never quite sure. Sometimes I go to see a movie and I'm high and I remember very little about it, which actually is yeah. not so bad because then I can go see it again. It's like, seeing, you know, seeing it afresh. Other times, I'll just have a vivid memory of it. And it's hard to predict. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, we do know when people ask about the issue of marijuana and memory, one thing that I learned decades ago from a couple of scholars, uh, uh, John Morgan and Lynn Zimmer, who wrote this book, Marijuana and Miss Marijuana Facts, was that, you know, when we're high, we can remember things just about as well as when we're not high. Right. Mm. And then by and large, using marijuana does not really undermine one's memory. People are always afraid it does. I'm smoking too much pot. But the mm-hmm. real issue is that the things you learn while you're under the influence of marijuana, you're less likely to remember in the future. And therefore, oh, if you spend a lot of time getting high, you're spending lots of time where the things that you learn, you may not remember as well as you would if you had learned those things when you were not high. So I think right. that's the real issue of marijuana memory that people, it's important for them to sort out. Right. Whereas the flip side of that with psilocybin is uh, psilocybin actually builds new neural pathways and they they believe that the what you learn on psilocybin, you're more apt to remember. Yeah. And it's easier well, to you know, it's also, I, I'm, I'm taking those, those, you know, Paul Stamets sells all those little mushroom pills and I'm taking <laughs> the memory ones. You know, I, I call them, Ooh. I call all these pills my placebos. You know, I have no <laughs> idea if it really works. You know, I, I think Paul Stamets is brilliant and I think he's undoubtedly yeah. onto something. Now, whether these, you know, these pills I try to take each morning, you know, he's got one for immune system and one for memory, the one with the, the lion's mane, you know, mm-hmm. so man, maybe it helps. I mean, I don't know. I haven't seen big control double blind studies testing this stuff maybe they're out there 
Um, but uh, yeah, only thing yeah. that it hurts is my wallet. Ooh, yeah. ouch! Yeah, I like thinking they work as well. That I, I would be interested in seeing some more of the uh, the double blinds. And I'm just I'm a lover of mushrooms. Ironically, I've my entire life I loved mushrooms. Just eating mushrooms, put them on everything. You can never put too many mushrooms on anything. And so mm-hmm. now it's kind of like come full circle yeah. for me. You know, I'm the same way. I mean, I've loved mushrooms as well. You know, I mean, you know, I didn't do the psilocybin mushrooms until my 20s, but I mean, just generally, I'm a, you know, there's the whole thing about dividing between microphobic and microphilic societies, you know, the ones that decide that hate mushrooms, that that love them, you know, in the the classic book by uh, Gordon Wasson um, about mushrooms in Russia, that was really a breakthrough book in the 1950s. I mean, he's kind Mm. of one of the pioneers in this area. Um, He's the same one who went down and kind of, you know, found Maria Sabina and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, won her trust. And then unfortunately she kind of landed up the worst off for having met him. But I mean, his experiences beginning with Russia and then going to, um, I think Mexico, um, obviously played a very important role in kind of launching part of this, the first stage of the psychological revolution back in the fifties. Yeah. And for those who are unfamiliar with that story, um, Robert Wasson went to Mexico and he met with a a shaman woman, mushroom facilitator, Maria Sabina, and she had sort of been carrying this tradition of using psilocybin in ceremony. And um, they had, him and his wife had these incredible moments and experiences on it. And they wrote an article about it in Time Magazine. And then people started flocking there. Life, life, and, life uh, Magazine. Oh, Life, sorry. Life, life, life Magazine, which was then the huge magazine, the photo magazine of America back in the, back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. 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 So uh, I've always actually really honored Maria Sabina because she's, A, she's a woman and I'm a woman and uh, she did mushroom ceremonies. I do mushroom ceremonies and um, well, I, I got a kick out of the fact that I live on the Upper West Side, and for many years, there was a wonderful little Mexican restaurant called Cafe Frida, which is actually where I celebrated my mm. 50th birthday um, with a whole lot of people. And they've had they had a picture of Maria Sabina on the wall, and always was like a nice little connection, you know, to, to have <laughs> that there. Yeah, I yeah. love that. Um, and you said you did five uh, meo DMT as well. Was that recent? Well, I mean, that was strange. It was about three years ago. Yeah. I was kind of, a bunch of people had been encouraging me to like smoke the 5-MeO-DMT and I was kind of scared. And then finally one day with a friend of mine who, um, uh, you know, I said, okay, I'm ready. And he said, Ethan, I'm sorry. I don't have the smokable version at home. I only have the snortable version. And, and, and so I said, well, well yeah, I mean, who knew, right? And so, so, so I said, "How long do you think it'll last?" He goes, "I don't know. Smoke will like fifteen minutes. This will probably be a half an hour." Or so, so he gave me these two lines to snort, right? Big lines, burn like hell. I mean, burn like yeah. hell for like fifteen minutes or whatever, and then it comes on. And I have to tell you something. I mean, five hours later, right? I'm kind of um you know, coming out of it. I mean, I always knew where I was. I've always tended to be fairly grounded in these experiences, but you know, wow. uh, five hours later and I come out of it and they asked me how it was. And I, and I'm saying, well, I think it was very, very good. And I literally, my mouth could oh, not no. make words. And like, even then I, my appetite began to came back. And as I'm talking, I'm still talking like this. I don't know why you can't. And it wasn't until the next morning that, that you know, that I could really begin to, you know, talk normally. Um, and then I remember I had to drive home, but not drive home, drive to a friend's place. But it was like, I almost didn't recognize any roads. I mean, it was powerful. Mm. My, my hosts asked me, they said, Ethan, were you doing Kundalini 
exercise. And I said, what's Kundalini? <laughs> and well, they said, well, you know, it's, it explained to me what it was. He said, I said, why do you ask that? And it's because I was lying on my back and like my legs were like shooting out, like there was energy shooting out my legs. But it was to some extent for me, like an extended weird type of mushroom trip. You know, mm. it, it wasn't, uh, you know, the what I've heard about from other people and read about in terms of the 15 minute smoke five MEO DMT thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a very different tale for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know. I don't part. know who snorted it actually. I mean, I mean, you know, and I don't think I'll do it again either, you know, in part because it hurts. So, I mean, it burns so much. You know? Yeah, the the smokable version doesn't burn so much. It's even um, yeah. better tasting than DMT. Um, but for me, I also run the gamut of what my um, my facilitator says. I do the the hip Olympics, and uh, my what's hips the hip are just just where my hips are all over the place. Like I'm stretching my hips in every which direction you can possibly imagine, and rolling all over the floor. And uh huh. Um, but wow, that's yeah, interesting. But it, Have you tried it through the vape pen as yet? The five mo DMT vape pens? No, I haven't. That seems I, to be. I look, mean, that this seems to be coming this thing, and um, mm. so I'm eager to try it soon. But what what it allows you to do is to titrate the dose, and so rather than going into that, you know, 15 minutes of you know your whole, you know, that goes on forever or it doesn't, and your everything, the dramatic experience, people are titrating the dose and finding a comfort level, and they're saying it leaves them. Um, I mean, depending on the dose, but can leave you with a tremendous sense of well-being um, in the mm. immediate aftermath and that you're able to use it more often. And there's not much research about what are the health you know, benefits or risks involved with doing this stuff. But I'm, I'm eager to try it in that form and see what that's like. I would be interested. That's probably a really low dose. So like I've done it three times. My first time I started at like 63 milligrams. My second time I started at 72 milligrams and I had a complete whiteout, like didn't remember anything. And that was my most challenging one. And then this last time I did 36, which was significantly lower than the other ones. And I had the most mm -hmm. amazing time I've ever had. And, mm -hmm. um, and, but I, you couldn't take 36 and then like, go walk your dog around the block, like, yeah. let alone drive a car. Like you, you need no, to be no, there no. on the And I think this friend who's told me about it, I mean, he's got like three different vape pens of different concentrations. So you can really oh, titrate the dose, both by how long you inhale, as well as by which dose you're taking, you know? And I should so, look into so that. I am curious to try that. But why was the one where you don't remember anything the most difficult? Um, oh, there were, there were a few reasons why. Um, I had had such a powerful experience the time before, and um, I, so I went into the second time wanting to do a bigger dose to see what would happen deeper in it, and I got really wrapped up in wanting to remember the words, wanting to remember how mm -hmm. to describe the experience, and mm -hmm. so I didn't really surrender into the experience, and um, I was doing Bufo specifically, so um, mm -hmm. the, so that's a Bufo specific dose, not a five meo synthetic dose. Um, synthetic doses are about a third of what Bufo is for mm -hmm. the similar effect. And um, yeah, so in Bufo, you really have to surrender. the The less you surrender, the harder it's going to be. That's kind of where people end up vomiting or um, forgetting to breathe or things like that. And um, so I really struggled. I, I know there were some times where my facilitator really had to coax me to breathe. and um, But I don't remember any of it. It just – he calls it a whiteout instead mm. of a blackout where it's just all – there's nothing there. I literally can't grasp a single memory from it. 
It's very and, interesting because my experience when I did Changa um, a month or two ago, a couple, uh, about, yeah, about a month and a half ago, and the same thing, you know, you take it like DMT, you know, you inhale, you know, you know, deeply and, mm-hmm. and it comes on like so fast. Right. And, yeah. and you know, and, and some of that similar imagery with I, I would get with sometimes when I, um, uh, uh, yeah, another experience like that, well, you know, almost like, a um, um, what's the word, uh, you know, it's almost like this electrical imagery and this kind mm. of, this, you know, but what happened was I, I, I had some imagery and then, then like next thing I know, the fellow who's sitting with me um, is, you know, kind of talking to me, he sees me moving and I'm coming out of it. And he said it was like 15 minutes. And apart from that, you know, this, you know, I don't know, 30 seconds of the entry and the 30 seconds mm. of the exit. I had no recollection. It wasn't at all difficult. Mm. It was just like having a blackout or whiteout. Um, I have yeah. no memory of what happened. It was like I was just knocked out or something for that, you know, which so it was kind of a yeah. odd thing. And, and uh, you know, I didn't really know what to make of it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that, that was what happened to me the second time, the entire time. Then I did a, a second mm-hmm. smaller dosage. And again, kind of struggled to surrender into it. And the next thing I know, I'm coming to being like, wait, I don't remember anything. How do I describe that? Wait, now uh, I should have surrendered. I spent this whole time not surrendering. And mm-hmm. for me, that became a very, the most powerful, one of the most powerful lessons I've had this year about hmm. surrendering and the importance of showing up to surrender. And especially with plant medicines, to be there to do the work for myself first and to serve my community with the lessons from it second. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, it carried over this beautiful idea of surrender that I was like, oh, I'm not surrendering in this part of my life. And now I'm going to Peru. And I had planned to try to figure out how I could work every single time that I had a moment in Peru. And I was like, mm-hmm. wait, I'm not even going to surrender on this trip that I'm anticipating to change my life. Like, So I focused on surrendering there. And it's now become just one of the most powerful words on my radar. Uh-huh. Um, and I, That's I tie it back to starting at that Bufo journey, at that Bufo, uh, that specific second ceremony. Vis-a-vis the importance of surrender and surrendering oh, yeah. and going yeah. into the intention to surrender. Yeah. yeah. I don't, um, I don't, I, I'm trying to think if that's been my, yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I know very much don't fight it. I'm trying to think if I never, <laughs> I don't know if I think about it as surrender though. Um, you know, and it's interesting also, I mean, I've always tended to stay fairly grounded, even when I've taken like, I mean, sometimes I'll take very high dose mushrooms. I haven't done it recently, but I would do five or mm. six, you know, grams of dried mushrooms. So a really mm-hmm. big dose. And, Heroic you know, dose. Kind of could look psych, you know, psychotic and you don't want to let me out of the house type of thing, you know. But I mean, um, but even then I kind of know who I am, where I am. I, I'm not really mm. surrendering. It's kind of... um like a powerful force coming into me that's just kind of going in, you know, directions that I have some ability to move, you know, in one direction or the other, but, you know, and then on a couple of times it's gone into a dark direction, you know, I mean, I mean, there, I basically have had pursued two approaches. One, one, I guess I've had two times the mushrooms where it went into a very dark place, a very deep depression. And one Mm. time I just took some MDMA and that just kind of lifted me out of it. You know, it felt a little (laughs) bit like cheating, but it was very nice. But the second time I was in a very, very dark place. And in that case, I just decided like dive into it the way you would dive into Mm. a huge wave that you can't run away from at the beach, you know? Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be the solution there because when I came out of that wave, all of a sudden the depression, you know, receded and faded and things opened up to great beauty and joy. Um, mm. so I, it wasn't quite 
surrender. It was just, I mean, it was the sense like you can't run, you know, you better, right. you know, like go dive in, you know, and have confidence you're going to come out, you know, the other end of this thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's a solid difference between psilocybin and 5-MeO-DMT is like with the psilocybin, I, I call that leaning into the experience and going deeper mm-hmm. into whatever's coming up that's dark. Um, so mm-hmm. like you specifically dove into it, right? Um, mm-hmm. But with the 5-MeO, it's almost like a, a relaxing and a surrender, like not trying to fight the fact that you have no idea and can't explain what this body, this medicine is doing to your body in that moment. Right. Um, because right. it, it does something that you've probably never experienced before. Yeah. And I think of ketamine the same way. Like ketamine is like a four-dimensional experience. It actually makes your physical body feel like it's moving places and mm-hmm. doing things that um, you never feel on psilocybin, on marijuana. On- well, I'll tell you, I, I just did the um, – I had done – I mean, years ago, I had done this unusual ketamine D, uh, DMT combination. Um, uh, that awesome. a friend of mine had designed and was, uh, uh, uh his name was, uh, Sean, then, then he went through a transformation, uh, Sean, a Haley, um, mm. and, and went around dosing his friends. That was fascinating. But, but when I did the ketamine, not, uh, uh, first orally, you know, under the tongue with lozenges at a pretty high dose. And then the second time intramuscularly, um, with a physician, and, mm. and I have to say that really, I was surprised at its power. I mean, I did also, you know, unlike when I've done mushrooms, I was either wearing eye shades or in a totally blacked out room. So that helped. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that there, that kind of letting go and that floating feeling and being in, in places and, and that was unlike anything I'd experienced before. It, it felt, I felt more ungrounded in a good way um, mm. than I ever had with any, with any experience with ayahuasca or mushrooms. So. That was, yeah, it was short, but it was powerful and beautiful. Oh, cool. Yeah, I I rarely get a chance to talk to people who've also had deep ketamine experiences. Would you describe what you were in as like a K-hole? You know, I I was wondering, because people have asked me that, and since I I, I don't know what their K-hole experience is like. I mean, (laughs) I remember first hearing about K-holes, you know, know, when I was working on this issue from a harm reduction perspective, when I was running DPA, and, you know, and ketamine took off in the whole gay dance scene in New York, and people were describing K-holes, and we had to teach people that just because people look like they're unconscious, it's not like an opioid overdose. You don't have to have an intervention. Don't give them an Narcan. Don't call the emergency services. Just let them get through it. So I don't Mm. know if it was, but for me, there, there were two elements of the experience um, the first time I did it. The second time I did it, it was just a beautiful thing kind of floating out, like almost floating in outer space, like in one of these movies Mm. about people out in outer space. And and just a lot of kind of thinking through about relationships in a very empathic way, Um, uh, more so than I would normally do in my normal conscious life. Um, Mm. But the previous time, um, there were two things that were interesting about it. The first one was, I, 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 I don't know, the story is too long. I don't think it's too long, but we'll see. Um, we got time. I, I, I'd been reading this book. It was the biography of Frederick Douglass, right? The, the famous, you know, black anti, you know, uh, abolition, uh, abolitionist, anti-slavery, you know, leader in America in the middle of the 19th century, who has probably heard, more people probably heard him speak live than any other figure in American history up through the beginning of the 20th century. Right. Mm. And, 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 and the day before I'd been reading the chapter 
the book's by David Blight, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, this is a few years ago. And I've been reading the chapter where John Brown, the, uh, the other, the white kind of radical, almost biblical type prophetic figure who leads Harper's, the raid on Harper's uh, Ferry and is another great, you know, abolitionist leader. But, and he come and he and Frederick Douglass have this relationship of great respect for one another and some personal closeness. And, mm. and, and he asked Douglass, Brown asked Douglass to come see him. And there's this meeting where Brown is planning this raid and Douglas realized that this is basically a, a suicide mission, that there's no way it's going to happen. And Brown's saying, you have to come, you have to come, you have to come. And, and Douglas is as nicely as possible, you know, even though he believes in the use of violence to overthrow slavery, knowing that this is not it. And anyway, the ketamine comes on the next day. And I felt like I'm in the room with these guys, you know, and, and for me also just, you know, having, you know, for me, having built drug, you know, seeing myself as a social justice leader, building a drug policy reform movement, the people who had been lead, civil rights leaders, you know, abolitionist slavery leaders, you know, women's rights leaders, gay rights leaders, these are sort of like my kind of, you know, big picture role models in life. Mm -hmm. And so to have these two of the probably the most famous and revered you know, radical, you know, abolitionist leaders of the mid 19th century and to be in there feeling that whole thing with a vividness that was just extraordinary. And then mm. that kind of faded and I rolled over and I then went into this, um, um, this world that was almost like Avatar, you know, the movie Avatar and like, yes. and it was like, it was like I was underwater, like in a swamp and I'm, I'm like in this swamp and I'm going, I'm underwater. I, 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 I can't, I can't breathe, but, but I'm breathing actually. Mm. Um, and then I'm looking around, it's dark and it's murky. I can't see in front of me at all. I'm going, this is, this is scary. It's like, there could be snakes and monsters and all this, but <laughs> I don't feel scared. And I just keep mm. sort of like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, moving forward underwater. And then I have this thought like, my God, this is the way I could transition into death in a way without fear. Mm. And it was the only time in my life I've ever had that sensation or feeling or thought. But it was very, whether I actually will ultimately one day do it that way or not, I don't know. But it was nice to have that kind of thought and feeling under the ketamine mm -hmm. in that experience. You know, I think it, mm. it stayed with me and I think it'll stay with me for the rest of my life and hopefully stay with me when I'm transitioning out of my life. We'll see, you know. Yeah, just get some more for that moment. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> But uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because I always feel like ketamine is kind of like hopping on a ride. And there's something about the visions where you're like always moving forwards in them mm -hmm. that has been my experience. And they're, hmm. they're constantly like evolving, almost like you're on a ride at, at Universal and you're like going through scenes and looking at things and you'll stop and you'll, you'll pivot as the ride's still going and you look around. But I rarely get a chance to like stop and sit in those moments. But I, I tend to fly around a lot like in outer space and, and see mm -hmm. civilizations and things made up of, of um, energy. And um, I mean, I guess they're all different, really. Like, and you're always flying. So we, I'm always flying. Well, it's because, look, we're bringing our, our own, you know, pre-existing consciousness to these things. I mean, it's, um, 
you know, so obviously that's going to shape it and determine it. Although I was recently listening, I what's the guy's name? Um, somebody, you know, who, uh, who, who's got a podcast and books where he argues that consciousness actually exists outside of our minds. You know, mm. he challenges the fundamental notion that all consciousness really derives from essentially human consciousness. And that's what, you know, ben argues that mm. there's something that ind exists independently, a broader consciousness that our brains are just part of you know, receiving from and contributing to, but that it exists in its own independent right. So I don't mm. know. In that case, that's... That could also explain some of the universalities. He makes a kind of persuasive case right. for this kind of heretical, radical argument. I wish I could remember his <laughs> name. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, it, yeah, and the lessons that you sort of learn when you're in those spaces, they, they apply to, I think, everyone's experience and um, what we should be drawing into our, our knowledge base, our remembering of what it's like to not just be a consciousness trapped in this body, but... Um, I had another instance where on ketamine, I got turned into a piece of sand and I got built into a set of stairs and I got <laughs> left there and I, and I, it was beautiful because I actually got to feel what it was like to be something that we consider so minute and so unimportant, but yet it was all interconnected with everything around it and it just served its purpose and I was happy and, um, it was a really interesting. Hmm. Wow, interesting experience. I've never had that kind of thing. That sounds that sounds that sounds wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Let's think yeah. about sand next time. <laughs> yeah, all right. Actually, interestingly, the one time I had that very dark experience um, um, on mushrooms, where I dived into the wave, you know, kind of figuratively. Um, but it was actually on a beach. It was in Montauk, New York, at the tip end of Long mm. Island. And I was on a beach and everything just looked bleak as hell. And I'm looking at the sand and all the sand looks like it's dead, dead skeletal fossil stuff, like crumbled, mm. crumbled fossils and such. It was just, it all looked, everything looked dead and dark, you know? And then, it, and literally when I did that dive into the wave, part of the dive was on the, on the literal element of it was actually diving into the sand. Um, as I'm diving into the wave in a more figurative way and then coming oh, wow. out of it. Yeah. Wow. Love that. <laughs> oh, so I want to. Isn't it nice circle. that we can actually talk about these? I mean, I mean, you realize for decades of my work, it was really impossible to talk about this stuff openly. I mean, even in the original really? years, I couldn't even really talk about marijuana use. And I had to be, I was always very careful about the way I referred to my own marijuana use because it was that period in the late eighties and into the nineties when there was massive drug testing, a massive drug war, incredible demonization. Um, you know, and, and, you know, back and I, you know, I come of age in the late seventies, going to college in the late seventies when it was a very much a live in a let live era. And then to have the whole thing close, Go clamping down, closing down, like what well, we thought that you, you know, you had this notion that well, that freedom naturally expands, right, in a free society. But then you mm. see, in fact, of course, you look historically, it doesn't always go that way. And in fact, we always have to be aware that everybody's accustomed and used to this notion of of, of increasing freedom and psychedelics initiatives are winning, and all you know, and marijuana is getting legalized around the country and around the world. But things can, in fact, turn the other way and have have turned the other way. You know, it, it's um, and so, yeah, and I think for 
people your age and you know a little older or younger, it's hard to imagine that period where you really had to be careful about what you said and to say this mm-hmm. stuff publicly. And certainly, and I remember even tiptoeing into be, my being open about my own psychedelics use, you know, and, and like finding finding some places in a sympathetic crowd which where it was not being videotaped and saying, okay, I can do it there. And then mm-hmm. we're always referring to it in the past tense. And and but it was a slow evolution of trying to figure out. What are the right moments? And obviously the importance of people coming out about their personal use, you know, but Mm -hmm. for me, you know, running a drug policy reform organization is relatively easy to do, but, you know, tens of millions of Americans living in places where they're drug tested or where they could be fired or in parts of country where they would be disapproved of, you know, I can't tell how many stories I've heard, you know, about parents, you know, finding out that they're, that, that they're, that the parents of their kids' friends won't allow their kids to come over to their house because, oh, that parent's talking about their own drug use. I mean, just, wow. you know, I mean, there was a real extremism about this stuff, very much parallel to the way homosexuality was handled. And mm. and it's interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of a of a mark of kind of older you know, social justice warriors like myself, but it's been true of every social justice movement that we're very proud of the victories um, we won. And part of part of what we're proud of is the fact that, you know, a new generation coming up, up has a hard time imagining what that oppressive reality was like. On the other hand, there's a part of like being a little pissed off, like, I mean, young people don't even understand this. They know this. They just take this freedom for granted. They think they're goddamn inventing the world and have no idea of the struggles that went before to actually create this level of freedom, you know? Mm. So so it's um I do think it's really important for for younger people to kind of understand this history in the same way that people who you know who are you know who who are gay you know um should understand what you know what people fought for and went through in previous generations and what people who subjected you know to racism and anti-semitism and other forms of bigotry have dealt with to understand mm. this evolution and in part cuz it's also important to you know, avoid having this stuff um, bubble up again or to know how to deal with it when it bubbles up again. Right. Yeah. I mean, fuck yes. And thank you for shedding light on that. Thank you for the work that you did to enable this to be so, I mean, I'm 36 years old and Mm -hmm. I only started speaking publicly about doing mushrooms in May. Wow. This year. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I, you know, I was sort yeah. of on that bandwagon where it was like, oh, if I'm going to post it to Instagram in my story, I'm going to do close friends only. So like, who are my close friends? Uh-huh. And then even with marijuana, I don't think I posted publicly about marijuana until maybe like I moved to California in 2010s and where it was like, you know, medically legal. So maybe not even until like yeah. 2012, 2013, where I was like, fuck it, it's legal here. If someone has a problem, like they can figure it out, you know? Right. But, but I mean, obviously, for a lot of people who are thinking about their future, I mean, I, how many people I know who worry about, you know, what if my employer wants to know? What if they right. want to drug test me? What if I want to, mm-hmm. you know, go work in government? What if I want to run for political office? What if, what if, you know, all mm-hmm. sorts of things, um, mm-hmm. you know, or I think I can't tell you how many people I know people who, you know, uh, who had children. And then they get divorced and one parent is, you know, uses marijuana and the other one doesn't. And that lands up being something that can be used by the non-consuming parent against the consuming parent and things like custody battles and things like this. Right. You know, so it's just, I mean, God, I, there was, I was just in touch recently with a fellow named Andrew Feldmar, a Hungarian Canadian psychotherapist um, uh, in Vancouver 
Um, and, and he had contacted me 15 years ago. He'd been going back and forth to the U.S. to visit his family forever. And one day he's going back, going back and somebody, one of the customs immigration officers, Googles him and finds an academic article where he talked about using LSD as part of the legal, the legal LSD experiments back in the 60s and pre- kept him from coming to the United States to visit his kids. And since that no time, way. he's not been able to get back to the United States. So, I mean, there's still that kind of crazy shit going on. You know, wow. and I mean, God, you look what, what's going on in Russia now with, you know, fucking Putin and what he's doing to, you know, the, the basketball star and all this stuff. I mean, you know, you realize, mm. God, could my public revelation about this stuff be used against me if I want to go to a place like Russia or Saudi Arabia or Singapore or something like that? So, you know, it's still mm. it's still not totally safe. And then if as you do, as I was just doing recently watching the, the TV series Handmaid's Tale. That's a real oh, yeah. nightmare scenario, but when oh. you see how, in fact, things can, in fact, go, I mean, you know, a whole story is about things going backwards in a, in a kind of fascist, semi-totalitarian way, and, mm. you know, you realize, so, oh, and with America being so, you know, screwy these days, and with the rise of, author, you know, sympathy for authoritarian and neo-fascist and even fascist, you know, mm. uh, leadership, um, you know, we, we, we do have to be careful about this stuff. Yeah. What are some of the things that you think could make, as you say, the pendulum swing in the other direction? Like what will take us away away from our direction? So away from the, the acceptance that it's gaining, what would, what would swing us towards, um, you know, cracking back down on psychedelics and well, I mean, look, we know there's always a pendulum that swings, right? We know that the anti-marijuana folks have mostly lost, but they keep looking for opportunities to draw a line in the sand. And so right now, what, what they're trying to do is obviously the whole issue around highly potent cannabis, which is a real issue. I mean, people have to be careful mm-hmm. around that stuff when you get, you know, cannabis, you know, being available at 60 or 70% THC. You know, I mean, when, I, when I've done Holy a few times shit. I've dabbed. Well, if you've ever dabbed, I mean, you know, the few times I've dabbed, it's like, huh? I mean, it's like I'm a crack version when of marijuana. Yeah. Well, I mean, exactly. It's like, I know I got like, you know, three minutes or five minutes to keep standing and then I better get, you know, horizontal. And I don't, I don't see the yeah. point of it, but some people, you know, you know, relish it. So you see there, there's some of that. And obviously there will be at some point, there, you know, there, there's inevitably an increase in cannabis use among adolescents. It tends to move up and down irrespective of what the policies are. But when it does go up, there will be a renewed, you know, clamor and people will start to use the same arguments about protected kids. So that's on cannabis. Mm-hmm. I think with psychedelics, um, you know, it's um, it's a range of things. I mean, obviously, there will be you know injuries and fatalities. I mean, as there were back in the day, there'll be people doing dumb stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. There will be um illicitly produced psychedelic synthetics that people will die from. Um, you know, the stuff that's going on now that the more you have psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, you know, I mean, all of therapy has problems involving sexual, you know, misconduct, right? And that and, yeah. and there's no way that the psychedelic therapy field is going to be immune from that, right? So that's now mm-hmm. become an issue. Um, you know, I think it's useful to put that in the perspective that although you want that the total number of incidents to be zero, 
that it exists in the broader therapy world as in the psychedelics world, but there are obviously particular vulnerabilities associated with doing a psychedelics contest or an MDMA contest. Right. So that stuff, you know, it's important for that stuff to be called out and to be addressed and taken on. You can't hide from it. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, the downside of, of some of the media attention on that stuff is it puts out a negative message on that stuff. So I think you have to balance the need for that stuff to be aired and to be made visible and dealt with, with the way it's put out there and, and the risk that could happen in terms of, you know, making less. I just saw that there was a lawsuit um, that MAPS just was um, a jury just found them that they have to pay a million bucks to the parents of a girl who was at one of their Zendo harm reduction tents. And, and, the, and the jury found that, that they did not provide proper care. And so Zendo MAPS um, mm-hmm. which runs the Zendo Harm Reduction Project at you know, concerts and events, as, and even more so the host of the thing. So it wasn't just them. It was the, the major events. But they had, you know, had to pay millions of dollars. And I mean, wow. MAPS is still in ongoing litigation about this. But you realize when you, that sort of stuff happens, it's a tragedy. And, and, and you want everybody to do better. On the other hand, the net result of that sort of stuff could be to dramatically reduce the amount of harm reduction services made available. Because mm-hmm. if people feel that, you know, we're going to try to help people and if we screw up, um, we're going to be sued and have to, you know, go out of business or, you know, fire, you know, do- a dozen staff, um, you may say, well, that's too risky a project to undertake. So it's it's right. a tricky thing. Um, um, so, I, I, you know, and we have to remember, too, with psychedelics, I mean, yes, these ballot initiatives won in Oregon and Colorado, and that's very promising. But still, the majority of Americans don't know what we're talking about. And, mm-hmm. you know, and the majority of Americans substantially have not done these substances. Um, and so and people are always looking and ready to be scared and looking and ready to want to crack down. So mm-hmm. I think there will be some pendulum swinging the other way at some point. The question is how hard and fast it goes and how well, how prepared we are to deal with it. You know, when I was kind of building up our drug policy reform work, and especially around our work around drugs and kids, you know, for me, I looked very closely at the marijuana reform movement of the 70s, both in terms of what they did right, looked at in retrospect, um, in terms of mobilization mm-hmm. and getting 11 states to decriminalize marijuana possession in the 70s and a range of other things, no and shit. the beginnings of the medical marijuana movement, but then also the things they did wrong, which was assuming they had the majority of the public with them when, in fact, the public opinion polls showed they barely had a third, assuming that they could call mm. out you know, sympathetic leaders um, and challenge them before they were really able to deliver, given the broader politics. And then also, there was a moment in the late 1970s when the survey showed that something like you know, one out of every 10 high school seniors was smoking marijuana daily. And nobody really wants high school kids smoking weed daily. And so there was a legitimate parental concern then. And the early stages of the marijuana movement did not really know what to do with that, right? So when we began to, you know, gain speed in the 90s on that, and we set up a project safety first um, to deal with the, uh, the issue of drugs and kids, we were very attentive to the concerns of parents, the real concerns of parents. So you have to constantly, you know, be watching your flank and playing defense at the same time as that you're pursuing offense. And that's part of what Mm -hmm. can, you know, ward off things going too much backwards when, you know, the media and the public is ready to turn that direction. Yeah. And where is marijuana now? Like what's the status of marijuana policy reform? 
Well, I mean, you know, the progress is still remarkable. I mean, I mean, you know, just uh, this past election day where Maryland and Missouri voted to legalize. So that now makes 21 oh, states, including wonderful. another basically red state, Missouri. You know, the ballot initiatives in some other states. Um, what was it? Uh, the Dakotas, both Dakotas. And um, I think the last one was maybe Arkansas. Um that those got those got those were defeated, but you know they got forty something percent of the vote. And the South Dakota one had actually mm-hmm. won a few years before, but the governor had kind of you know cut its legs off. So I think in, if you look at public opinion polls, if you look at the waves of legislative reform, the ballot initiative, state legislative reform, um, I think we're going to see quite likely Minnesota may go soon, um, some other states. So it's it seems quite inevitable that progress. Um, you know, the bigger debates now and for a whole new generation of marijuana reformers, it's less it's less about whether we're going to legalize and more about how we're going to legalize and whether it's going to be mm. done in ways that help the quote unquote legacy markets. The people have been growing marijuana illegally for a long time, whether it helps, mm-hmm. you know, people of color who have been disproportionately, you know, you know, arrested and harmed by the war on drugs and the war on marijuana, um, whether it's going to help small business folks as opposed to the bigger business players. Um, and in fact, one thing, you know, for for many of us, we always assumed that federal descheduling of marijuana, there is de facto marijuana legalization at the federal level, right. was the kind of gold ring, the big prize. But many of us are having questions about that now, because once that happens, that opens up the door to big alcohol, big tobacco, and big consumer good companies getting into this business. Um, and that's going to transform it in ways which may work out better for your ordinary consumers, but by and large is not going to be from a probably a public health or broader economic benefit thing, a good thing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, kind of, you know, I mean, we're all trying to figure all this stuff out, you know, about, about what the world should look like. Um, you know, meanwhile, you know, one of the big <laughs> marijuana organizations, you know, has asked me to join their board. And I'm trying to think, do I want to join the board of a big marijuana organization? And part of it is, you know, well, this would be, you know, lucrative and really interesting. And I'd actually have some influence on the inside. You know, on the other mm. hand, you know, I've kind of been a small as beautiful kind of advocate for a long time. So, you know, there's there's all these dilemmas to try to think through. <laughs> yeah. And, and where do you see um, like psychedelics fitting into to that? Or are we sort of really far behind considering, you know, you just said 21 states have gone legal in some way in marijuana and now we're, we're two for psychedelics or are we, we catching up super quick? And Well, I'll tell you about it. I mean, it, it, they proceeded, I mean, some of it's parallel in the sense that the psychedelics reform on one level, you know, began, I mean, there's obviously, there's been sort of three strands, right, of psychedelics reform. Right. One has been this remarkable scientific research that's going on um, that's being done that maps raised a lot of money for philanthropic money to try to get MDMA approved by the FDA. And they're, you know, getting close and close, but it's taken hundreds of millions of dollars to get there. And, you know, it's challenging for a nonprofit to try to do that sort of thing, especially when for profit investors are showing up now and putting money in. Right. I mean, the the more that for profit Mm -hmm. folks come in, I found this with the marijuana thing, the more that people began to see an opportunity to make real money in marijuana, the less people wanted to make a philanthropic contribution to support marijuana reform, right? Many of my Mm. key philanthropic donors at some point started to say, Ethan, let the people making money from this stuff pay for it. We don't want to do that anymore. And now the the psychedelics field is dealing with that as well. I mean, Rick Doblin and Mm. Maps and I talk about this a fair bit. Um, But what I would say is you have that medical scientific side, right? Where 
MDMA is going to get approved by the FDA. Psilocybin is going to get approved maybe a little after that for uh, you know uh, severe uh, depression. Then these things will be available for other medical conditions. You know, major university research centers. Michael Pollan's breakout book. You know, how to change mm. your mind. I mean, all of these things are proceeding in a way which I don't think is going to stop. And I think some of the excitement will wear off, both as we see that, you know, you know, nothing's going to solve the human condition, right? But, and, and, and there's a sense of great hope and optimism about this stuff, but it is real. I mean, the research results are real and are substantial mm-hmm. and are significant. And the field of psychiatry is so kind of lost in many ways that this could really revolutionize the field of psychiatry. Then you have the other strand, right? Which is the decrim stuff. And that was all the local initiatives beginning in Denver a few years ago. And then, and then Oakland and passing through city councils and, and, you know, more and more of those popping up to basically decriminalize possession and maybe even decriminalize the kind of, you know, small level production or small level sharing. And that's, that's somewhat similar to the marijuana reform movement. Remember the medical, the medical marijuana thing moved forward, not in the way the psychedelics thing was. It wasn't the big thing that was driving reform for us. Medical marijuana was more Mm -hmm. of a political battle in which we use the sympathetic victims of the war on marijuana who were using marijuana as medicine as the way to, you know, move people's consciousness around this issue. But these, these local initiatives, um, are, 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 are similar to the marijuana thing. And they're spreading around the country. And then in the middle, you have, you know, kind of what Oregon and I think Colorado has done in their ballot initiatives, which is both a decriminalization of possession element, right? But also a kind of not a medical model, but a therapeutic model. We're trained mm-hmm. therapists who don't have to be credentialed with, you know, uh, MDs or PhDs can actually, you know, do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So it's a kind of in-between, a hybrid type of thing. So I think that that's, I think the the psychedelics thing has moved forward more quickly in the last five years than I think marijuana ever moved forward in five years. I mean, I look back to mm. the first medical marijuana initiative in California back in 1996, which I didn't draft, but I was the one who kind of, you know, raised all the money and put together the campaign. Um, and oh, then the cool. six we did right after that in 1999, 2000 in Alaska, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Nevada, and Maine. You know, that was pretty rapid stuff, but it, it wasn't with the magnitude in a way. I mean, it was breakthrough, but but the psychedelics thing has had a level of energy um, that's really been um, quite remarkable. So I don't know if it's going to keep moving forward state by state. We'll see what happens with ballot initiatives uh, two years from now, whether, you know, Washington or California or Nevada or maybe someplace in the East tries to do, do a psychedelics initiative. I mean, the psychedelics thing mm-hmm. does seem to have a, there's more openness in the West than there is to East, which was also true yeah. in the early years of medical marijuana. Um, we'll have to see how it goes. Um but I think it's definitely got a lot of momentum behind it. I, I don't think that's gonna I don't think that's gonna drop off radically anytime soon. Yeah. And is there something that we can do on the national level? Like I know Biden signed that signed into agreement that by twenty twenty four he wanted psychedelic therapies to all be legal in the United States. Um, but it was like Well, what I mean does he set mean? up this task force. <laughs> Right. He set up a task force and it's got good people on it. I mean, I mean, the thing that's pathetic has been the failure of the federal government to fund much in the way of psychedelics research, apart from ketamine, the one legal mm-hmm. psychedelic, until really like a year or two ago. And even now it's a pittance. 
And so, you know, people are, you know, uh, upset about the whole role of capital and for-profit players in this stuff, you know, and how they're, you know, trying to get patents for things that some which are reasonable, some which are not. Um, <laughs> but it's also about, um, you know, I mean, one way to do that is to have the government putting large amounts of money into research in this area. And, and, you know, and the National Institute of Health, National Institute of, you know, National Institute of Drug Abuse and the other institutes within the National Institute of Health that are dealing with areas um, where psychedelics are helpful, not just with addiction, but all sorts of other sorts of things. You know, National Institute for Mental Health, NIMH, um, National Institute of Cancer, where there may be some interesting stuff there. Um, so I think that's a pivotal thing that the federal government can do. I think the second mm -hmm. thing is basically just getting these substances the hell out of Schedule 1. Like right now, there's a right. bill that was introduced by Senator Cory Booker and Senator Rand Paul, the libertarian Republican from Kentucky and the prominent you know, senator from New Jersey, basically to allow any Schedule One drug, right, like psilocybin or NDA or anything like that, where the FDA has given it breakthrough status or where there's substantial evidence about its medical efficacy to be essentially treated like a Schedule Two drug in terms of being able to do research mm. and things like that. So I don't know if that built me in any traction, but it's those sorts of things to re re remove the onerous and ridiculous and backward and non-scientific overregulation at the federal level, together with mm -hmm. allowing a serious flow of funding um, to come through. I think those are probably... Uh, the two things that would be most valuable. Now, of course, if you know we get a president one day uh, who says talks about the role of psychedelics in their own positive transformation, you know that would probably help as well. Mm. <laughs> you know, having Let's some leading that. political figures talk honestly about that, or other highly respected Americans. I think, um, especially non-politicians who are less polarizing but very popular. I think mm. that I think that would also make some difference. Yeah, like a, when Aaron Rodgers came out talking about doing ayahuasca and how it helped him yes. win his last two MVP titles. Um, exactly. I mentioned to or someone the, the other day, I was like, oh, yeah, I just got back from Peru or, and I was doing ayahuasca. And he was like, oh, the Aaron Rodgers play. And I was like, oh, I've been doing ayahuasca since before yeah. Aaron Rodgers talked about yeah, it. No, sure. exa <laughs> exactly. But it's true. It, it's, um, I mean, you know, when Steve Jobs basically said, you know, I think he said that, you know, he probably wouldn't have done what he'd done if he hadn't done psychedelics. And mm. and there were all other Nobel Prize winners who attributed, in some cases, marijuana, some cases, psychedelics to their breakthroughs, their intellectual breakthroughs mm -hmm. that have really revolutionized, you know, you know, uh, technological developments in America and sometimes other things so yeah. it's um it's uh 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 yeah i mean those sorts of things do do resonate hey look the fact that more and more people are conscious of the fact that the founder of alcoholics anonymous bill w mm. bill wilson that and i didn't quite realize until recently that it was two separate psychedelic experiences that it was an experience with a pa very powerful and very and somewhat dangerous psychedelic called belladonna which actually oh. gave him the first insights into appreciating how, you know, what became Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, some of the vision mm -hmm. for AA came out of that experience with Belladonna. But then once AA was already established, I think it was his experiences in the 1950s, I think with LSD, um, that helped him get a handle on his lifelong depression. 
And mm. so he had two powerful cycles. And now, obviously, the board of AA discouraged him from speaking publicly about it at the time. But it's increasingly well known. It's in his biographies. People in the recovery movement more and more know about it. Somebody was just telling me their kid has been in AA for quite some years. And, you know, they're like, if you've ever had a problem with one drug, you can't use any other drugs, right? If you had a problem right. with alcohol, you can't smoke weed. If you had a problem with heroin, right. you can't, you know, yeah, you know, which, which, you know, is true for some people, but not true for many others. I mean, God knows mm-hmm. I know people, you know, who had a major problem with opiates or cocaine or booze for whom marijuana turned out to be something that they might have a dependent relationship with, but it allowed them to really lead highly successful lives. But even mm-hmm. in the 12 step movement now, there's a growing recognition that the psychedelics are something different that these plant yeah. medicines are non-addictive, you know, to call them a drug, yes, and some by some definition they're a drug, but in other respects they're a therapy and they and that they can be very helpful. And in a way it honors the founder of AA, Bill W, to kind of acknowledge mm-hmm. this and to let this stuff emerge into the recovery world. Yeah, and I know so many um so many addicts or so many alcoholics who are now sober um who have now had like experiences with plant medicines and changed Mm -hmm. everything for them. Um, And a lot of people that I know who've gotten sober lately and are sponsoring others are starting to, to channel people and send them in my direction, other people's directions about, Hey, I've got this person I'm sponsoring and, and they're really struggling. And, and we sort of all collectively think that psychedelics might help. And like, what can you, what can you share with us about it? And what could they look at? I mean, it's amazing. You know, one of the people I interviewed on my podcast, Psychoactive, um, uh, Elias Dakwar, professor at Columbia, and he was doing research funded by the government on ketamine and addiction. And there's obviously Mm. lots of things with other drugs on this. I mean, I say two things that really stand out for me. One is when NIDA finally gave a grant to do psilocybin research on addiction, it was on tobacco, cigarette smoking. Right. And Mm -hmm. so here's something that, you know, we don't think about in the same way we think about heroin, cocaine or alcohol addiction. But in a small study that Matt Johnson at Hopkins had done, had found really promising Mm -hmm. results. And so now he's got the resources from NIDA to really do something more substantial on this. So I think that's very interesting. And then on the other side, I'm just fascinated by Ibogaine. I mean, because oh, yeah. Ibogaine, you know, it, it does this, like ayahuasca, like mescaline, like psilocybin, you know, it does that kind of, you know, powerful, potentially powerful spiritual experience, especially in a guided setting that may help people process and get beyond their addictions. And, you know, more, I'm sure much of your audience knows about all of that. But the neat thing about Ibogaine is it seems to eliminate the withdrawal symptom from opioids and some other substances. So, mm. you know, if you're trying to, you know, process a heroin addiction, ayahuasca, you're still going to end up going through some withdrawal, which can be difficult. Right. But with Ibogaine, um, it's knocking out that withdrawal symptom. So there's something Wild. else going on with Ibogaine um, that's, you know, I mean, there's got to be more research to understand what exactly that is. And then meanwhile, I guess the third thing is when you begin to realize that Ibogaine and maybe ayahuasca, maybe the others, if you look at the traditional uses, they're not just being used for addiction, right? These are being used, you know, Mm. for, you know, spirituality. They're the basis of, uh, you know, religions, you know, the Bwiti religion in Mm -hmm. Gabon and the Native American church and a range of others around the world. Um, But they're also, also used as part of health and wellness in these traditional societies. And then one of the questions with those things is, well, what else is going on in this plant that's not just about consciousness, but that's actually about, you know, the human 
body, our human organism. Mm. Now, of course, the two can't be totally yeah. disentangled. I just interviewed uh, Gabor Mate on my on my podcast, and and you know his his whole thing is about trauma, you know, uh, prenatal trauma, yeah. you know, early early age trauma, but all the evidence about the ways in so many so many so many types of illnesses are more prevalent in people who had various types of traumas when they were younger. Right. Mm. And so we see that and that and that being able to process that stuff with or without psychedelics um, is uh, is, uh, you know, so, so you know, that 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 role in basic broader physical wellness is pivotal. Barrett, let me pause for one second to plug my my sure. computer because it looks like it's fading. Sure. No worries. Okay, we're good. Hey, yeah. yeah, I won't keep you much longer. I know you got to run. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's powerful, you know. Especially, I like to look at ayahuasca, for instance, and and the the two different plants that you combine for ayahuasca, the actual healing properties they have on the body. I don't think can be just attributed to putting DMT and and an MAO inhibitor in you, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. something to the shakruna, for instance, that actually can get in there and help your body heal, um, beyond just like a mental, mental perspective. And that's a lot of what these things do. You know, if you're ready to do the work, I don't, I don't know that they will have the same effects on someone who's not ready to show up and do the work as well. Who's ready to introspectively Although go it raises deeper. this interesting issue, right? Which is that if you could, you know, as pharmaceutical companies, you know, both startups and more established ones try to figure out, is there something going on chemically? It's conceivable mm. that one outcome of all this research may be effectively pills or mm. other types of just medicines that turn out to have medical properties that help people even independent of the entire, you know, what we associate with the ayahuasca psychology experience. And and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think if in fact it turns out that these plants turn out to have chemicals that can be isolated. I mean, I kind of hate the fact that it means that these things are going to land up costing a fortune. I mean, pharmaceutical companies <laughs> are going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to figure it out and to get them through all mm-hmm. the double-blind controlled studies and get it approved by the FDA and blah, 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 blah. And then it'll be covered by insurance. You know, So that part of it I don't particularly care for. But the fact that it might result in some effective medicines and medications to help mm-hmm. people even apart from the psychedelic thing, you know, because to my, to my mind, it's not either or in the same way that some people, you know, I mean, I mean, even with the whole commercialization of cannabis that's happening and now we're seeing it with psychedelics, I think the nice thing that exists with both these substances, you know, is that if you want to opt out of the commercialized or capitalist model, so long as there's a right to grow your own, Right. Mm. Or to obtain it from a friend, you know, small level, non-commercial transfer or whatever, which, mm-hmm. you know, most of the states in marijuana have the preserve the right to grow your own plants up to a point with the psychedelics initiatives. The Colorado one was quite bold in this regard. Right. And we have to be careful that people don't take advantage of how wide open the Colorado initiative is on the decrim piece to kind of mm. take advantage of it in a way that causes the public to turn against it. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that I think that 
you know, the, yes, the, yes, the capitalist model, the for-profit model, the highly commercialized model, the role that big pharma, well, it's not big pharma yet, it's small pharma right now, but eventually could be big pharma. You know, yes, there's all corrosive elements to that sort of stuff. But the fact is, is that part of the benefit of all that medical research going on, scientific research, is that it's destigmatizing psychedelics. It's mm. helping people understand that, God, if a doctor can prescribe psilocybin, well, how bad can it be if somebody's growing their own mushrooms at home and taking mm-hmm. the same drug that way, right? And yeah. so long as nobody's going to jail for making their own mushrooms at home or growing their own San Pedro, you know, to get mescaline out of, um, you know, that's all well and good. I mean, the risks mm-hmm. happens when we start relying on, on white powders that are being manufactured in the, you know, illicit market, you know, as is the Ugh. case with, with fentanyl, right? I mean, right. or some of these other designer drugs, that's where people are getting massively harmed. But that's mm-hmm. the problem of an unregulated drug supply. So having a world in which we have a regulated drug supply that's available, maybe by prescription or in some, you know, kind of, you know, in-between status, while at the same time people can, you know, grow their own or get it from friends, you know, I think that it's not either or. I think these things can move forward in tandem. You know, the only thing I don't like is when I see, you know, people who are on the for-profit side start to oppose decriminalization, start to oppose the, the rights of individuals to grow their own. Um, uh, you know, I remember this happened with GW Pharmaceutical, which was really a pioneering firm in terms of getting the first approval by FDA and foreign, foreign FDAs for Sativex and Epidiolex, you know, to help with, you know, to be using cannabis for dealing with, um, different types of epileptic conditions. But then that same company, which breaks through, then hires a former deputy drug czar to lobby against the medical marijuana movement. And that was just despicable. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, or even when this marijuana company is asking me about joining the board. And the first thing I say, I say, look, if you guys are ever opposing home grow, I can't even talk to you guys about joining. They say, no, 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 we're not. We're good. We get it. We're, we're behind <laughs> it. You know, but that kind of greed and narrow mindedness that people coming into either marijuana or psychedelics where they want to ban that thing. You know, as mm-hmm. as if as if Budweiser you know got all obsessed with trying to ban people from making their own beer at home or something like that. <laughs> I mean, just, yeah, things can't go that way. It yeah. is crazy. Well, what's coming down the pipeline for you? What are you most excited about moving forwards with all of this? You know, that's a great question. I mean, you know, as I mentioned to you in Las Vegas, you know, my podcast, uh, Psychoactive, it was really, it was nice. It was growing a growing following all around the world. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. the numbers were not big enough to justify iHeart um, renewing it. So that's mm-hmm. going to, you know, I'll finish off my first 80 episodes, two seasons um, in January. And I have to figure out whether I want to continue it in a, a you know, I was a little bit spoiled having an opportunity to do it with mm-hmm. iHeart and with Darren Aronofsky's production company, Protozoa. Um, oh, so I have to cool. figure out if I want to keep doing that. You know, maybe it's time for me to sit my ass down and write my book that I've been meaning to write forever, which would be kind of part, you know, policy book, advocacy book um, and memoir. Um, so that's on my mind. Maybe I'll join the board of this uh, uh, cannabis company and I'll have to spend a lot of time learning that because I don't really know the for-profit world in that kind of way. Um, mm. And then for some reason, recently I've been just getting all sorts of invitations to be on the road speaking, like where I met you in Las Vegas at that mm-hmm. um, 
uh, what was it called? Remind conference, the one day yeah. psychedelics and business conference before the huge MJ biz conference. But I'm speaking at cannabis conferences, psychedelics conferences. I'm going to recovery conferences. I'm speaking around the US. I was just in Nigeria and Sierra Leone giving speeches and meeting mm -hmm. with government officials and advocates there, you know, a little consulting role. So I, I'd say at this point, at this point, I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, cool. building and running Drug Policy Alliance and before it had a different name for 23 years, it was a monumental enterprise. You know, I, I did it relentlessly without ever taking a break. I finally handed mm -hmm. off the reins five years ago, you know, at a, at a moment of my choosing. You know, it took life easy for a few years and the pandemic hit. And now it feels like I'm kind of getting back out there and enjoying it and just picking my spots without having to have the responsibilities of running an organization with 80 employees and raising the money and dealing with boards and bubbling everything else. So, <laughs> so I say overall yeah. life is good and, you know, continuing to explore with other types of substances is also part of something I enjoy doing. And I have now more time oh. and space for that as well. Ah, I love that for you. I really do. <laughs> yeah. I've had a lucky life, Barrett. Yeah. 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 Can Continue yeah. to dive deep, and uh, if you ever want to share your experiences, I am happy to listen. Well, thank you so much, Barrett. I mean, I really appreciate mm -hmm. the opportunity, and you're asking me to be on your podcast, and I want to wish you all the best with it, you know, yeah, and you. Uh, and with everything else. Yeah, thank you. And where can my listeners keep up with you? What platforms are you um, on? I mean, at this point, go to listen to my podcast, Psychoactive. Um, which is on all the major platforms. Um, and even after I stop doing new episodes with iHeart, it'll still be available on all the major platforms. Um, and I guess the other way is, you know, I, um, my email is ethan at natalman.net and I can't promise to respond, but, you know, there's a decent likelihood. So people should feel free to just email me um, if they have questions or thoughts and, uh, uh, and I'll do my best to respond. Perfect. Well, I'll have that all linked up in the show notes for you. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Well, thanks, Barrett. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review this podcast wherever you're listening. I'm so grateful to have you on this journey with me. Until next time.